Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Ashley Merrill as founder of Lunia and Lago. Ashley is reinventing sleepwear for modern women and men, respectively. Both brands share a simple mission to champion rest in people's lives. Beyond Lunia and Lago, Ashley is principal at impact investing firm NAHCO3, where she leverages her background in venture, technology, and the arts to invest in ways that utilize business to create opportunity and move humanity forward. Ashley is also the co-founder of The Deep, a media platform that makes philosophy and personal exploration accessible through thought-provoking questions, and she's also the chairman of Outdoor Voices. Both personally and professionally, she's an active supporter of organizations like SOLA, Upstream, and United Medical Corps, and she is a SoCal native and resides there with her husband and their two young children. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Ashley Merrill. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. As I was reading through your bio, I was like, it's unbelievable how much you've got going on right now. And I'm excited to dive in. Yeah, I heard you saying that thinking, this is someone that might need some more focus in their life. <laughs> no. You know what I heard, actually? I heard like, that sounds like the dream, honestly, to be able to do so many different things that you're passionate about and be like challenged in a lot of different ways. I read that and I was like, wow, she's figured it out the secret. Awesome. Well, before we dive in, we like to start every show with a bit of like a fun and light question. What is something fun and interesting that you've learned in the last week? It could be maybe a conversation you had or someone shared something interesting with you, a book you're reading, maybe an investment you're excited about or a challenge you faced and you learned something from it, but something new, fun, and interesting that you can share with us from the past week. Well, look, I'm becoming increasingly, I don't want to start out on a bad note here, but I've been increasingly concerned about sort of the international conflicts and trying to understand what does it mean to have nuclear weapons and what would play out if people started using that. And so I've been very impressed with what kind of information you can get on YouTube and watching lots of videos about how they work and how they break apart midair and what makes them challenging to stop and what would happen in a sort of tit-for-tat scenario with some of these big superpowers. And so while it's not light and fluffy, it is the kind of thing that I have definitely expanded my perspective on how those work and how we're thinking about the power balance across the global world. Yeah. I mean, it's so timely right now. Obviously, it's so heartbreaking what's happening over in, you know, Ukraine. And it's times like this where it forces us to figure out our own opinions on it. And it's really gray, you know? I think that's the other thing too is, Obviously, we don't want nuclear war. That's pretty black and white. But like you said, understanding the power balance, like, well, if they have it, should we have it? 
And what are those like moments where you threaten to stop something bad, but you don't actually want full nuclear war? And it's very nuanced. And so it shows that you're also like taking a deeper look at what's going on here. And like, I think that that's really important. A lot of people just look at it like surface level. Like as of today, we're seeing full destruction of Ukraine. It's horrifying. But you're like, next step, what could happen? You know, what does this mean for us here? So it's good that you're looking at it from a more nuanced standpoint, you know? It's it's a wild world we're living in. Let's put it that way. And I feel like this is actually why ultimately we started the deep because your point about it's a lot of gray, you know? And I think that's true. And the deep was about asking questions and being curious about the world and understanding how things work. And I think that I definitely feel like as a person, I'm kind of on a constant quest for that. Yeah, I mean... I think we're all craving that, right? It's like why I think people like look to podcasts now instead of quick social posts, you know? It's like you just, you want to like get into stuff, I think. And you don't want to just, you know, you don't want the five second snippet. You want like, but what does that mean? And from my standpoint, it affects me in this way. But from someone else's standpoint, it might affect them in that way. And I know that's why, and I know I already share this with you, but I just absolutely love what you guys have done at The Deep. And I think like, it's conversations like that that need to be had. And I'm so glad that you're doing them around this war and more greater what, what nuclear power and nuclear war means. Is there any resource specifically that you felt like was super helpful, whether it was like a video or a documentary or an article or something that you would recommend? Well, I think when, when trying to understand these things, with trying to understand anything, you have to understand it in a 360 perspective. And there's this Yuval Harari quote. I don't know if you're familiar with, he wrote Sapiens and a number of these books. I'll read you this quote, but he said, the Nobel Peace Prize to end all peace prizes should have been given to Robert Oppenheimer and his fellow architects of the atomic bomb. Nuclear weapons have turned war between superpowers into collective suicide and made it impossible to seek world domination by force of arms. And whether you agree with that quote or not, it's a fascinating perspective and so contrary to the common perspective around nuclear weapons being like the worst thing that ever happened, he's sort of going, because it's mutually assured destruction, everybody just having them basically ensures that there's a line people won't cross. And so I just wanted to understand that line better. And so, you know, kind of, I love his books. I love his perspective. He brings a lot of different things together. And then just watching, you know, literally you can just YouTube, Google, kind of search how these things work. And there's so many wonderful videos that explain dynamics and trade-offs and consequences of these kind of decisions. It's like as oversimplified and, and gruesome as it is to say this, there's an aspect of like a chess game going on here between countries. And so I'm just trying to understand what are the weapons everybody's playing with? What are the pieces that they have, you know, and just really it helps me better understand and relate, I think, to the decisions that we're making as a country. Because I think we often have knee-jerk responses. Uh, why don't we just go in there and do X? Or why don't we? And when you understand issues more, I think back to your original point, there's just a lot of gray area and it really helps you appreciate how complicated these decisions are. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What a quote. Wow. You could think about that for so long. Yeah. It's like, and it's rare to take something that's so like negatively connotated and make it like, wow, actually we've almost reached a ceiling when it comes to like destruction. There's like nothing more we can create. Right. I mean, I'm sure there will be, but it it is a fascinating perspective. And I think it's a fresh perspective, like a completely different way of thinking about something that is obviously horrible in many ways, but to kind of understand how it impacts decision-making on a grander scale is, is anyway. Yeah. Wow. It's so interesting. So 
Ray Dalio wrote this book about like the changing world order. And I'm not someone like a dense, more historical book is just not really my cup of tea as much. I'm more of like a light romance kind of gal, but I do appreciate it. And he put together this really awesome like animated video where he explains his, how the world order changes every 250 years. And there's like a few key things that happen that make it change. And the U.S. has been dominant for the past 250 years. And China is now rising and we we don't have to get into all that, but it's so interesting to hear these people talk about like from a much, much wider perspective. If we take out this one conflict or this one dip in the economy or this one, you know, thing, like what does this actually say about what's happening and how does it not just affect us in America, but all the other countries? And I think we don't do that enough here. I think like in America, in SoCal, and you know, it's, it's very local and in some ways that's great. We're very individualistic. I care about my problems. You care about your problems, but I do think like what the deep is doing and obviously some of the things you're watching and thinking about outside of that are like much broader. And I think it is really important. So thank you for bringing that to light. And maybe you want to check out that video. I feel like you would like it. Yeah, I will check it out. Will you say the name one more time? Yeah. So his name is Ray Dalio and he's like some big investment Bridgewater guy. He's like around, you know, he's written lots of books, but it's an animated video based off of his newest book. And it's called The Changing World Order, I believe. Check it out. It's like 45 minutes, but it's pretty good. Well, thank you for sharing that. What an interesting one. We, I will say, we've never heard that answer before. <laughs> so I appreciate- I when you asked me that question because I thought, people aren't going to like this. This isn't super relevant for what we're going to be talking about, but hey, it's honest. It is. <laughs> Listen, that's honestly like, and I was listening to a podcast actually last weekend and it was like a lot of like the best gems you get from podcasts or stuff you never end on t- intend on talking about. And it's the stuff that we would chat about in a conversation if we just like met at a restaurant, you know, like- oh, I'm, I'm thinking about this really interesting thing in current events. It's it's not so structured, you know? So I think this is the stuff that at least I find interesting. So hopefully other people do too. All right, well, we'll dive in, I guess. With this show, obviously, you know, we focus a lot on your 20s and I know you did a lot of great stuff then, but to have context for that, we like to start with childhood. So what did you want to be when you grew up and how did that play out? We'll just start with what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a lawyer. Classic. We always hear that answer. I want to be a lawyer. And I think some of that, and maybe, I don't know, I'd be curious if this is true for, depending on the age of those folks that you interview, but some of that was because Allie McBeal was a very popular show of our time and at a very impressionable age for me. And she was depicted as this like strong, powerful, sexy, intelligent, like she was kind of all the things. And I remember being like, that's how I want to be. And I think what I came to realize as I got older was I identified with the sort of personal attributes of her more than actually the profession of law. 100%. It's so funny. That's that's actually, I think, the case with Grey's Anatomy for a lot of my generation. This like desire to be like Ellen Pompeo because she's just gorgeous and brilliant and saving lives. It's the same thing. But like when you actually think about it, you can do that in a lot of professions, but we idolize like one woman that has like the beautiful man and they're like killing it in their field and everyone respects them. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Of course. And yeah, you're exactly right. I think you can find that in a lot of different facets. We have this exercise called Ikigai at Lunya. It's a Japanese word, Ikigai. And it's this idea of kind of finding your joy in what you do. And it's this intersection of circles. If you Google Ikigai, at some point, everybody could fill out this diagram of intersecting circles. But it's basically helping you kind of isolate 
what are the things you're good at? What are the things that, you know, the world needs? What are the things that you enjoy doing? And what are the things you can get paid for? And, and there are all these overlapping circles. And in the, in the middle is something that's usually kind of illuminating that, that is really you. That's kind of the essence of what doing every day brings you joy. And sometimes it's surprising that at the middle, there's not a title and there's not a career path. It's, a doing, you know, it's an actual thing that doing daily, like if, for example, if, if for you, it could say something like learning and connecting with others. And it's like, cool, you could find that joy in lots of jobs, but this current role makes sense. And lots of others could. And, you know, like for me, it's uh, creative problem solving. And so there's a lot of jobs that could do that. And so I think to that point, it's, it's sort of like, I really, I definitely connected with something in her. And then it's that magic of trying to figure out what it is that you love to do and are good at doing. And then how do you make that show up in your day to day? I love that. It's getting harder and harder though, because career paths are so blended between, I mean, you you can love food and you can become an engineer for food, or you can love painting and have your own Etsy shop. Like it's so fun, but it also makes it more stressful, I think, because people, there's infinitely more possibilities. Like I think even back in the day when I think about like the generation above above me and even above that, it's like you became, you know, a secretary or like a doctor or a nurse or a lawyer is so much more like pick one of these 10. And there's also a lot of gender bias with which of the 10 you pick. Like women typically should pick these five. Men should typically pick these five. And now it's like anyone can be any of the things and blend the things and come up with new titles for things. And so I think that's where, like we hear too, that people can feel really overwhelmed. Like, you know, they don't even know where to start. So it's very hard. The privilege and burden of choice. Yeah, it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to choose, but there's a lot of responsibility and stress that goes along with it. So I see both sides of that. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of choice, how did you figure out law wasn't for you? What was that path? Did you, how far along that journey did you end up going? So I was convinced I wanted to be a lawyer from probably late middle school until all the way through college. And that means, you know, I grinded myself on grades and all these, a lot of certain subject matter choices. And I really made a lot of decisions in my life and a lot of trade-offs in my life around this career that I wanted. And I will say, I'm really grateful for that because I think that when you're feeling aimless, it's really hard to dedicate yourself. And so because I had this true north, it's just a vision, you know, we all just like you want to work at a company that has a vision, you need a vision for your life. And when you have that, it points you in a direction. And it doesn't mean that those things don't evolve over time, both in terms of a company, in terms of a country, in terms of an individual. But while you have it, you know, you always want to have one, even if you're changing it from time to time, because it really helps give you that kind of deep intrinsic motivation to push towards something. And I am grateful because I had that through all the way through college. At the end of college, I took my LSATs. I mean, I did literally the whole thing. And I've always been very ambitious. So I, when I pictured being a lawyer, I was like, I'm going to be, you know, I want to be a partner at a major firm. And so I was like definitely shooting for that kind of lawyer. My mom said, why don't you just talk to one of my girlfriends who is a partner at this major downtown law firm and talk to her about what her role's like. And I went to lunch with her and I remember, and I feel like by saying this out loud, people who've managed to pull this off better might be annoyed that I'm going to say this. So I'm going to say this. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to caveat what I'm about to say to be like, this was her experience. But this was my experience having lunch with her. She says to me, well, you know, she's a badass. She's like a major partner. She makes tons of money. She's like, I love my job. 
I get a lot of fulfillment out of it. I make a ton of money. It's She loved being like the only woman in the room. So she's like, I, I feel powerful and smart and all this. And she goes, but I'm divorced. And I have sort of a strange relationships with my kids. And I've very much struggled to have balance in my life. And I remember being like, ooh, I didn't want a singular life like that. And then also because it was a life that your compensation was tied purely to your hourly, how much you can give from an hourly standpoint, I went, I don't even see a light at the end of the tunnel there. And so I kept thinking, my goodness, if I do want a family and a husband and balance in my life, how am I going to pull this off? Because I don't see a world where I ever get to sort of back off or take a different role and still make money and, and have a good lifestyle. And, and so honestly, at the end of that lunch, I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. And then began the crisis of self. <laughs> where do I go now? Totally. Oh my gosh. That's, but good for her for being honest with you. And she could share the perks of like, everyone looks at me like a badass. I make a lot of money. But if you want a family, there might be some issues here. And I think your point about earned income is actually so smart because, and this is something I think a lot of people discover in their 20s, is like how to make money and how to build wealth so that you don't always have to tie your income to your hours. You know what I mean? And this idea that like if your time is always going to be attached to money, basically, like earned income. You you can only work a certain amount of hours in the day. <laughs> the more hours you work, the more money you make. Like, that's not going to lead to a sustainable life. You know, you'll be working till late because you need more money. You know, so one of the things I talk to a lot of young folks about is I really think it's, you got to think about building, it's the vision for your life. You have to build a, bit, a vision for your life in your head. You can have an incredible hourly job. I have a lot of friends that are like nurses and doctors. Those are hourly jobs. But, you know, there's beauty in those too, right? So the beauty of those, some of those jobs is that, you know, you're not bringing it home. Like when you're a nurse, you're a nurse, you're at the hospital and you are like crushing it when you're there and you work some extensive hours, but then, you know, minus COVID period, let's just talk about a normal nursing experience. You know, then you come home and, and you don't have like a thousand emails that you need to write. And, you know, like there's a perk to that too, right? It's more of like, it's a job that's on the clock. And then it's when you're off the clock, you're off the clock. Whereas if you're responsible for outcomes, like an entrepreneur, there is no off the clock. You are always on the clock. You know, I sometimes talk to people who go, well, I want to start my own thing because I want flexible schedule. And I think, well, that's the wrong idea. Because <laughs> if by flexible, you mean your job will now find its way into every crevice of your life. Yes, <laughs> I agree with that. And so I think it's really this act of figuring out either can I spend my time doing something hourly that brings me joy? And then on the flip side, I'm going to have a really reliable sort of schedule. You know, I'm a teacher and, and like my sister was a teacher. So one could argue that as a teacher, you also have now a lot of stuff to do at home too. But I will also say you just don't carry the same burden of being responsible for a team in the after hours the same way you do if you're, you know, running a business. And so I think that's that's hard. And every job has its its trade-offs, you know? And so anyway, it's more of, I don't think that there's a prescriptive, you should choose X or Y, but I think you should build a life towards the life you want. You know, I had this conversation with my sister at one point just saying, 
you know, as you think about it, if you want to have a family, you might want to not live in Los Angeles because it's an expensive city to live in. And it's about prioritizing, like this idea that everyone should be entitled to live here and have a good quality of life. That's like me saying, like, I want to live in, you know, if I live in New York City, I'm choosing to live in one of the most expensive cities in the world. It will put more stress on my family in terms of my need to earn more income and thus have less time for the family. These are all choices that we make eyes wide open. You know what I mean? And so I think the best thing we can do is be intentional about crafting towards whatever good looks like for you. Yeah. And getting to that ikigai, like that middle point, getting to that really your truest self and then figuring out what your trade-offs are and what you prioritize. Like you said, family, the stress of bringing stuff home with you. I think that's such a great point. It's it's so hard to know, though, I think, until you're in it and you've lived the bringing stress home to know whether or not you can handle it. And I think what can be hard, too, is sometimes if you are so ambitious, like, I mean, I've got a friend. She's a teacher. She is unbelievable. And she carries that home with her, too, because she is so good at what she does. And she genuinely believes, and she's not wrong, that she is crafting the future for these kids. And so that also can be so hard. It's almost like if you have ambition and you actually care and almost you find that thing that really does make you tick and does actually speak to you so deeply, you'll carry it home with you no matter what it really is. Like, cause you will just care. I think that's, there's truth to that. I think, but there's a difference between energizing stress and sort of depleting stress. And so if you find it that, you know, you're carrying it home with you because you are so mission focused and so committed to it and so excited about it, frankly, and feel that the work you do is so important. I think that's different. I think I'm not saying that's not stressful, but it's again, it's a stress you choose. It's the thing you opted into because you have the passion there. So I think a teacher right now, I think it's a pretty brutal job. And it was a tough example because I am, I mean, even nurses at this point, I feel like I use the two worst examples, especially during COVID. If you're like a receptionist where you just like clock in at nine, answer the phones and leave at five, you don't have a phone at home, you know? And everything comes with the trade-off. But I think if you're going to choose a job that's all encompassing, if you can have passion for the mission and for the work you do, I definitely think it helps. But yeah, it's a tricky world right now. You know, lots of competing demands. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think it's the lifelong quest too. And as we'll see, as we kind of talk through more of your journey, like it's constantly changing, you know, the career you have today isn't always the career you have tomorrow. So you talk to this friend, this family friend about being a lawyer and you walk away going like, no, I'm good. I'm not going to do that. I've taken the LSAT. <laughs> uh, not for me. And what is the next step? I know you, so I went to, no, you went to UCLA for undergrad. And then I did do some research and I saw there was a culinary school certificate. Did that come just next? Well, so what happened is my parents said they would pay for four years of university. And they said that because I guess they had had a lot of friends whose kids were like dragging out that college experience. And my parents were like, look, we'll pay for four years. That's what you get. And I remember it was, this is going to tell a lot of who I am as a person. I went, okay, how do I maximize this? So I graduated from high school with a ton of credits. I actually went into college almost as a sophomore. And then I realized if I was an art history major, I was always passionate about art. And I realized that I could be a lawyer with an art history major and English minor. So I was kind of moved forward going, okay, this is my path. And I knew that if I was an art history major, it would enable me to live in Italy for a year while still maximizing the amount of credits I could get because there was no other major you could be abroad for more than one semester and still fully get the credits. 
So I lived in Italy for one year of school. I had two years of school. And then I realized I had extra time that was still on the paid clock with my parents. And I was really passionate about cooking. Actually, while I had been in Italy, I also went to culinary school there during while I was in school, but I did culinary school for part of it. And I was very passionate about it. And I said, you know, maybe I would want to be, I had thought I wanted to maybe go into food as sort of a career direction. And so I thought if I get this education, maybe I could do catering. I liked the flexibility that that seemed to come with catering. It didn't feel like a nine to five every day the same. And, and so I thought, okay, I'm going to go check out this career path. And so for six months, I went into like what is a very different kind of educational experience. It's I don't know if you ever seen some of the shows where they were they train chefs, but it's very yes, chef, you know, very hierarchical, you know, sort of obedient, almost militaristic. And it was a great experience. I'm so glad. You know what? Of most of my education, that is probably my most used education that I have, which is hilarious. But I cook my family most days. <laughs> so it's a very useful skill set. And so, yeah, I went to that. And then while I was in school there, I realized I wasn't sure that was going to be the right career for me, at least in the short term. And that I really felt like I wanted to understand business better. I didn't get a lot of business education either at undergrad or high school or really at home. And so I felt like the most business idea I had that you could do was going to venture capital. So I went to one of the VCs nearby and I remember saying, I realize I don't have a you know typical background. I'm not an econ major, but I'm a really hardworking person and I will figure out what I don't know. And I will work for you for free for four months. I'll come here after school because I was in school full time. It was five days a week, like I can't remember, at least five hours a day. And I was like, I'll come here right after and I'll work for you for free for a while. And if at the end of this time period, you want to hire me, great. And if not, that's okay. Think of the experience. That was how I got from an art history major into the business world. And you just said, I'll work for free. And they can't turn that down, you know? Someone who's so smart and talented. I mean, at that point, no one would know. <laughs> so at that point, they're taking a risk. This is one of the things I will say, I kind of, you used to be able to work for free. And I think it's too bad that we don't allow people to work for free right now. I understand why we put you know, minimum wage expectations on this kind of thing. But here's my rationale for why not. Most of the most successful people I know got their start by working for free. And they, you know, didn't mean these were like privileged people that were like living off their parents and then working. Like usually they worked a day job and then they went and worked the free job that they did. And the reason I say that is as an employer, if we switch stances for a second and put ourselves in an employer's shoes, an employer is saying, hey, I need some help with X, whatever that X is, right? And I'm going, well, either have someone here that's going to do it for free and maybe they have a slightly less attractive resume. Maybe they haven't done this before, but they seem like they're willing to work hard and the value they're getting is experience out of this. So it might be worth taking a chance on them because I think they seem great and well-intentioned and they, they feel like they're hungry, but and it costs the company less. So if I'm wrong, if they don't have what I thought they had, kind of no harm done. And the problem is when minimum wage is high enough that it starts to be like, well, look at this person. They don't have the perfect background. And look at this person who has the perfect background and they're pretty close in compensation. I'm just going to choose the person that has the more typical compelling background or the better school or whatever they did. And so it's funny because it's this, this initiative, and this is the case with a lot of 
sort of laws and, and different rules we create where they have a surprising unintended consequence, where these laws are put in place for a very reasonable purpose to make sure that employers don't take advantage of people and to try to make sure that, you know, it's not just people who can afford to not take compensation that are getting these opportunities. But I will tell you that sometimes then it actually favors people with more traditionally excellent background, you know, sort of pedigrees or sort of education, because now I'm choosing between two people who are both going to cost me kind of the same amount. I'd rather take this, the sort of safer choice. So it's, it's an interesting conundrum. I remember being on a panel with three different amazing women and literally all of our stories began with free employment. So kind of a tricky. Wow. It's so interesting. You're totally right about these like unintended consequences, but sometimes a lot of like ego and money and things are at stake. People can't walk it back or they can't like edit it. And so they just have to kind of commit and they can't really look at the like more nuanced again to like our great conversation. What really actually is this doing for society? And I think it's it's a great point. Like when you put $0 down and you just let someone do it unpaid, you can take as big of a risk as you want because there's no investment. But when you're investing, like a normal business person investing, you know, a thousand bucks a month or whatever that, you know, minimum wage is, yeah, extra person is, you're like, this is now an investment. I need to get like risk-adjusted returns. Like if I am investing some money, I need to now make, you know, as much, if not more. So I will choose this. So like, you're totally right. It takes out the, the kind of whatever, like no stakes approach. And it makes you, like you said, pick maybe the safer option. And I think that's so important. And I don't know how in society we can check ourselves. Like three months after we start something, six months, a year, we should do more editing, I think. Because like a lot of times people, I really believe like community is good and people have good intentions. But so many things you could not even predict come about and we should be able to really like think critically about them. At The Deep, have you guys thought about like, maybe some of the more like policy side of things or how you guys can encourage people to like think again. I mean, it's kind of like the Adam Grant book, Think Again, but like how can we like double down on what's actually best and not just stick with like plan A, you know? What you're talking about isn't a policy problem. It's a cultural problem. It's connected to the same issue that has us canceling people because they make mistakes. I mean, to be honest, it, it's not a growth mindset cultural trait. If you think about it, if you're going to hang everybody out to dry because they said something stupid in their youth or they weren't a great leader, it creates a really tricky environment for actually getting improvement out of people. It actually makes, you know, and, th- and then I say that extends to policy because we're creating that same, you can never fail, you can never change your mind, you can never iterate type of expectation on our leaders. I think that there's a lot of things that can help. The Deep is 100% designed to target this exact problem. That is exactly what we're doing because what we realize is, you know, if I go and I have a conversation with you and we talk about abortion, you have an opinion on abortion and I have an opinion on abortion. That's really not that interesting because your opinion on abortion is based on whatever your like life experience is, honestly, probably mostly about how you were raised, like what your parents believed and what culture and community you came from. So it's less interesting for me to have that conversation. But if you and I had a really interesting conversation about, if I asked you, is somebody who is brain dead, but is on life support, are they alive? If I asked you, oh, what about someone whose brain is working, but the machine is breathing for them, are they alive? 
Now what I've really asked you is, is breathing the determinant? Is your brain determinant? What about if your heart stops on the table during surgery and you are technically dead? Are you dead? What if I can revive you with medicine? Were you dead and now are you alive? I mean, what's more interesting about that to me is you will probably walk away from that feeling very confused about what is alive and what is dead. And that's great. Because what you and I have both established through that conversation, the fictitious conversation we just had, is that these are hard and unknowable things. And actually, this has implications on abortion, which is like, when does life begin? Which is the real question with abortion. Forget, I know there's a lot of politics that are influencing this, but if you go, what's at the heart of it? That's actually the heart of that question. And I think that what helps is when we start to realize that most of us, and I'm not, not all of us, but most of us, to your point, are well-intentioned and we're just trying to figure out what's right. And what's right is not always super clear because then we show up with empathy and compassion for one another, even when someone has a different point of view than us. And we understand that these things aren't as clear. It kind of comes back to the nuclear conversation we started this out at, which is it's easy to hate the scientists that created nuclear weapons thinking if they only didn't bring this into our world, we would never have this kind of high stakes game going on. And then you have Harari's perspective being like, this is probably the luckiest, most sort of peacekeeping discovery that's ever happened. It's amazing how two things that feel like opposing point of views are actually kind of close together. And, and that happens all the time. And so I think as a society, we have to raise up leaders that believe this, that are empathetic, that understand that it's not bad people are not people that have a different point of view than you. Bad people are, are they're evil to one another. They're, you know, they're, they're doing, they're malicious. They're, you know, they're, there's a lot of things that would be bad traits, but having a different opinion is not that. And, and I think that goes along with being comfortable with this idea that we're all on this evolutionary path. And if we aren't evolving and learning, and frankly, I think you could have a leader that was more open. I've actually felt like for a while that you need the White House to have its own like a website where it publishes its own news only through its own news channels. And the rationale being that, like, I think a lot of the confusion is coming through the media interpretation of the narratives. And I think that actually, if you could have like a clear source of truth, you would give a president or, or a leader the power to talk about their iterative process, which is we tried X. And here's what we learned. It worked actually in these ways. And then this was the unintended consequence. So here's the iteration we're making. Like, let's use, health, use healthcare, which is like obviously failed here, you know? And it'd be amazing if we could talk about openly, here's what's working, here's what's not. And if they didn't have to worry about how media was going to misinterpret everything they said, if they could control their own narrative, they might actually be able to communicate the nuanced messages that are inherent in every decision we make. So... Yeah, no, it's such an interesting point hearing you talk about it. I think it is cultural. I think you're totally right. I think we need leaders, though, that support these conversations. I sense a, you know, a potential advisory slash business coming up for you with that. But it's so fascinating. And I think we just don't have these nuanced conversations enough. And we don't allow ourselves to hold opposing points of view. And it's really sad. It's really sad. And I think a lot of it, you could argue, is that people aren't even listening. You could have something at the White House. You could have something, you know, the media portraying whatever opinion or whatever fact. People don't even know the difference anymore. But like, people aren't listening. And how do you find the people who want to iterate their point of view? You know, you're talking about this, this life comment earlier, which is super interesting about like, how do you view end of life? And maybe that interprets how you do abortion. Like, my mom's a vegan. And so she talks about how she's like, 
I think feeling animals is feeling. Like I look at it like feeling. If you can feel something, that's my line. She's like human, animal, whatever. Like, and so it's it's almost like coming up with like your larger philosophy for something and then hopefully having that apply across the board and being willing to change it. But I think we have a listening problem. That's my thought. I just, I don't know that everyone's like willing to listen. I think you also have a tricky challenge of like, we are inundated by so much information on a daily basis. Like the burden of understanding what's going on in this world is very high. And most of us, you know, the vast majority of people, they don't have enough time to just get a roof over their head, food on the plates and their kids in bed at night. Like very few people have the time to go be philosophical and explore sort of all these big macro issues beyond a headline. And so I feel for them too, because I think that this is a very unrealistic expectation in some ways of the public to assume that we're all going to have deeply informed, nuanced perspectives on all these topics. And this is the challenge with democracy in some ways is that, you know, everybody's voting, not everybody's knowledgeable about all these things. And then if you didn't have everyone voting, you would also be missing out on a whole perspective. So unfortunately, I feel like this is a like everything, it's a complicated problem to solve. But I feel bad for people because I think it's this expectation like you're supposed to know everything and, and understand. I mean, ev- think about the number of things going on in the world right now. We've got like inflation, you've got a massive tech explosion and privacy laws that are going on. You've got a war, Russia and Ukraine. There's actually other wars going on too, just getting less headlines. There's a huge list that could be going. This is onshore fracking versus offshore, you know, we go on for ages. It would be a lot to be deeply knowledgeable about all these subjects, you know? It's fair that people don't have that kind of depth of knowledge. So then it's just this question of like, how do you move forward? How do you create smart solutions, understanding that most people really will not have the full picture on all these things? Oh, it's such a good point. I think we also need to be okay with saying, I don't know, especially in your 20s too. Like I'm trying to be better about that as well. Like, I can just say like, oh, you, if like, let's say you asked me my opinion on oil or you asked me whatever, and I can just be like, I don't know yet. I'm still forming my opinion. I'm still forming my opinion, you know, and like, let it be half-baked. Or I think this, but I'm still, I'm still forming it. It's something that you can say you don't know versus having to feel the burden, like you said, of having a fully formed, thought through all the philosophical consequences of each thing, you know? So, so interesting. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. I think obviously as someone who created The Deep, like, and it's something that I've cared so much about and I have appreciated. I love hearing your philosophy behind it. And it's really cool to hear it coming from such like an authentic place and that you're thinking about these issues so much wider than just what you guys are, are sharing online. So thank you for diving into that. Okay. So let's get back to the twenties a little bit. So you were thinking law school, then you had this conversation and then you thought maybe catering and then you went the catering and eh, maybe not so much. And I could imagine too, you thought oh, if I do catering, I'd have to have my own business or work for a business. So I should understand business. Then you went to venture capital. How did you like that? And then what came after that? So what I'll do is since I've kind of, we've gone slowly through a lot of this, I'll kind of walk you through the kind of next couple of steps and how we went there. But I went to the venture capital company and I was a junior, very junior hire there, obviously. And my job was to be kind of the initial sieve of the inbound pitches that were coming through, which I remember was feeling that that was oddly powerful given how little life and business experience I had. I remember being like, I'm the one that's going to decide if this gets viewed by somebody or not. And really what credibility do I have to be making this decision? And I will tell you that feeling only increased for me. 
So I remember sitting there being like, here I am at this VC and I just don't feel like I have, I don't know what it takes to make a good business. I've never worked at a business, you know, and I just remember being like, who am I to make these kind of judgments? It felt, it felt like being a partner or something. I was just like, this is a lot. And so I remember going, I need to go work at a business. I need to be on the other side of a table here. And so that's what I did. I went and worked in an online media company where I worked for, I want to say it was like four and a half years. The beginning I went in, did a lot of M&A because that was sort of the background that I had and a lot of business development. But mainly I just, you know, this was more of like a true first job. I got a huge opportunity to just learn how business works. And I moved around a couple different roles within that company, which was great for me and, and just such a great learning opportunity. And then at a certain point, I remember we needed a mom property, like a destination, and we couldn't afford to buy one. We were like very skilled in advertising. And we're like, let's build a destination for moms. And keep in mind, I didn't have any kids at this point. And so I said, okay, I raised my hand. I was like, I'll build it. And they were like, how much money do you need? What team do you need? I like just made it all up as I went. This was good training for being an entrepreneur. So this is that intrapreneur concept that people talk about. And so I did that and I treated it like it was my own business. I remember I literally hired my mom as like unpaid labor. (laughs) So I was like, mom, you don't have any skills yet, but if you want to come work with me, eventually you'll get these skills and then you could get paid for this. And so here's my mom. She's probably in her fifties at the time being like in the back end of a website. It was kind of cool when you think about it from her perspective, like we got to work together and she was just like, for a woman that age to understand how to work in the back end of a website, just like it was pretty empowering for her. Very cool. And then eventually she did grow into a job there. I hired my cousin to be a writer. So a lot of people I knew, and not because it was nepotism, but because I needed people who would kind of trust me. And I was young and inexperienced. I needed people who'd work for very little money because we didn't have a big amount of money. And I wanted to succeed on the little that we had, you know, and they just, they want to support me. And, And then I think that one of the key things, and I'll make this actually as a takeaway, because I think this holds us true now as it did then, is it became about finding win-win-wins, you know, and people talk about like a win-win, but it's like, it has to be like when I thought about bringing on my mom, well, people, it's like, oh, you're exploiting your mom or nepotism or whatever. And I'm like, look, my mom would work for free, which made her an easy yes for me. She trusted and believed in me. So my leadership was young and it gave me sort of this ability to like have someone that I knew would kind of follow me. And I felt like she was at a place where she was looking to rebuild her career after having been a stay-at-home mom for a long time. And I thought, you know, she actually is always good at writing. This was a really interesting opportunity for her to build her skill sets. No one would ever hire her. She had been at home for 25 years. So it was this really unique opportunity for her. So you had this like uniquely mutually beneficial arrangement going on. And like my cousin, as another example, she went on to build a website. She had been a caterer for a long time and had just had kids and was trying to think about how she was going to shift her job to be available for her kids. And she learned how to write online. And eventually after writing for Momtastic for a while, went on to build her own website and built a whole career out of this. So it was a really interesting thing where it was like, and I'm going to make this as a takeaway because I think that sometimes we're taught that we're victims, especially as young people, like as you're sort of like, like the people are going to take advantage of you and they're your victims and this kind of narrative, particularly in society today, like much more so now than when I was younger. And I will say 
that sometimes that's what opportunity looks like. My mom's opportunity was to come work for free for me. My opportunity was to go work for free for my, you know, that VC. And it's like, well, were they taking advantage of me? I mean, I don't think so because I don't think I was like a natural hire for that role. You know what I mean? So I think a lot of it is just maintaining that perspective on like, really, when you're just out of school or when you're early in your career, you're coming back after having been out for a while that like, you got to be willing to look at yourself as you really are in that moment. And it's like, hey, I'm here right now. That's okay. You know, I'm going to make less money because I'm transitioning my career. A lot of my friends, I remember when I was younger, a colleague saying to me, you're so lucky you don't make very much money. And I remember being like, well, that's a weird comment to make. But now I totally get it because he had a family and a mortgage and he made a lot of money and he didn't really like his career choice and he couldn't afford to take less money and transition his career. So I got, I get it now, but you know, it's funny because at that time I went, well, you're lucky you actually make a lot of money. And so at every stage in your career, you have these different things going for you. And I think understanding like when you're young, you have time, you don't have money, but you have time. (laughs) So you can give that pretty freely. And then as time goes on, you will have less time because you'll have more responsibilities and different things. And so the whole thing, it's an interesting, you have to look at where you're at at that moment. And what do I have to offer? What am I hoping to get out of this? And is there this mutually beneficial path if I put myself in different people's shoes where everybody's getting something good out of this? I think that's such a good point because I think a lot of people don't think that way. They think just about what they need. And the way the world works is it's like that energy, what, you know, energy doesn't dissipate, just goes transfers from one thing to the next. Like for something to be win, 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 you have to think about the world. Like if I contribute here, is this good for leadership? Is this good for the person that I'm working under or replacing or whatever? And what are the effects that happen versus like, what is best for me? Like, and making it as best you can a win-win-win situation. So if there's no reason for leadership to hire you, then give your time. If you have a lot of knowledge and experience, like now, let's say you do, for example, you're not going to go somewhere and give your time for free because you know that it's not beneficial for you or for them. Like they should pay you for your time. So it's so important. And it, it kind of comes at this like larger point of just like thinking about your role in society much larger. And it's not just about you and being individualistic and like, what do I want? You pay me and you tell me. It's like, why would they say yes? Or how does this affect everyone else? And trying to be as win-win-win as you can. I th- and I think this, this I will tell you, I think this ties into career promotion too, in that my employees that do the best at Lumia, we'll use that as an example, are typically companies that are, or in individuals that are least focused on themselves from a take standpoint and most focused on outcomes. Because to me, I don't really, if you think about it, the grander org, if you're creating a lot of great value for me, you're driving business outcomes, I'm happy to follow you with growth, as much growth as I can. You know, that's my privilege that I get to do that. I love being able to do that. But it's when you're more oriented around, I haven't gotten a raise in the last six months. And I'm kind of like, well, what, what value did you create in the last six months? You know, it's, it's like, this isn't doing time. I'm not here to like pay you to do time. This is a company. We're trying to get outcomes. Did you hit the targets that we needed to hit? Okay, no. So it's like, I already gave you the answer to the test, you know, like get the outcomes and we'll get there. And so I think that that orientation away from self, and frankly, if you're at an organization, because I've had people be like, well, my organization's not like that. You should leave. If you're at an organization where you don't ultimately think that that's what they're, that 
that only the squeaky wheels get more comp, then I think that's not the right place to be. You should be at a place that is actually willing to reward you based on the outcomes you achieve and with the holistic mindset of the business. Like if the business is doing well and you're achieving outcomes, then there should be rewards there. If the business isn't doing well and you're achieving, then you have to decide are you staying and you know, or are you moving on or what, what's happening there? But I think when you look at it, if you can remove yourself from a situation as much as possible and try to go, am I creating this enormous amount of value? The whole thing gets a lot easier. You know, these are people that are more focused on team and outcomes are absolutely the people I want to reward all day, every day. Yeah, it becomes more of a no-brainer, you know, because it's like, yep, you're helping me, I'm helping you, great, no problem, move on to the next thing versus like a little bit more sticky. Yeah, and as a leader, do, do you turn out a great team? Is your outcomes thriving, but also your team is thriving? And actually, are you growing your team? Are you creating exponential value in the organization, not just for yourself, but through the team that you're building? Like, that's amazing, that's great. You know, that's the focus. You know, at a certain point in your career, when you're early on, you get growth by like putting more and more work up your back and trudging it up the hill by yourself. You will hit a wall where you can no longer take more work up the hill by yourself. And when you hit that wall, the next focus is how well can you divide that work among others and get them to follow you up the hill? So now you're getting an exponential amount of work up the hill because people are motivated, inspired, clear, focused on following you. It's how you multiply yourself. And you can't just keep it. That's why they say sometimes what got you here won't get you there. Like, Early on, it's about your individual self getting up the hill and I did good, you know, and then, okay, great, you did. Here's a little more money. It's like, but, but you will hit a wall and that will no longer be true. And the skill sets needed to hit to that next level, it's a very painful transition for a lot of folks because you're like, I felt like what I did before was so good and I remember feeling so good about it and I can control what I do. And it's much harder to control what other people do. And it's like, yep, that's why that's a career transition. And that's why people who can lead others get paid a lot more because it's very hard to make people run in the same direction, you know? Yeah, that is such a good point. I think that's such great advice for people throughout their 20s as they make those transitions, hopefully, from more of that self-place to that more management place. Because I think it does, it starts to happen, or at least opportunities present itself where it can if you want to want to do it. Well, I want to respect your time. I know we're kind of coming up on time here. Obviously, you, you worked for this media group for four years, like you talked about the entrepreneur stuff. And then you went on to build Lunia and I shared it in your bio, but you have gone on to build so many other amazing things. And I think what's so valuable about this conversation is just hearing about the path to get there, you know? Like, it wasn't always so clear and you thought maybe law, maybe catering, maybe, you know? And, you know, it was windy. And obviously now you have this beautiful flourishing business, multiple businesses. And so it's just great to hear your thoughts. So um, I'll end with a final question. We ask all our guests this, and obviously you've shared lots of takeaways and gems, but if there's like one piece of advice you could give all 20-somethings, what is that one piece of advice that you would give them? I think I'm going to circle back to the beginning of this conversation and say, build a vision for your life. Be okay with iterating that vision, but build something and be willing to go on the journey that is necessary to get there. And what I mean by that is not every stage will feel fully actualized. And you don't always know whether you're on a tangent that feels like, you know, is this, is this exactly, you know, if let's say you wanted to be a CMO at some point and you're like, well, I, I don't have the perfect title that gets to it. I'd say worry less about that. Worry more about becoming the kind of person that has the kind of life that you want and build into that vision. So the clearer your vision, you will almost automatically 
be moving in that direction. Once you know, this is what I want. Otherwise you'll wander, you know, and you'll kind of like fall from job to job and you can waste a lot of time. And particularly as a woman, you have less time. I'm just going to say that the thing that people don't say enough, which is if you want a family, you have less time. So you need a clear vision and you need to know where you're going and build towards your path. That's like a life path. That's like a, do I want a family? Do I want to live in this state? Whatever that looks like, build it, see it in your mind's eye and move confidently towards it. Yeah. No, I think, and even like how much money do I want to make? Like what are the things that I know bring me joy? All of it. So other than Ikigai, are there any resources that you would recommend for building the vision for your life? Is it, I mean, one thing that I've heard a lot of people mention is, you know, there's a lot of tests and quizzes out there, understanding your values. There's asking people who are close to you, what do you think I'm good at? What are my strengths? Are there any practices other than the Ikigai, which is awesome, that you really recommend for helping to figure that out? So I have two ways of thinking about this. One way is it is literally the when you close your eyes and you just let your gut guide you, don't let your brain take over, and picture that ideal future. And you, what do you see? And be specific about it. Is there a spouse in that picture? Is there kids in that picture? How big is your house? Where do you live? What are you doing? Like, it's much more about just that instinctual gut of what looks good to you. When you fantasize about your future, what does the fantasy look like? You know, and not not a stupid, crazy fantasy, but just that like sort of gut. And oftentimes that'll be a, a compilation of different things that, you know, your life experiences. People tend to, be, you know, build a vision a little bit based on how they grew up. Is that, I remember for me, I knew I wanted to live in a rustic community and because that's how I grew up and I rode my bike around town and that, that was a part of my vision. And so when we chose where to live, I literally was like looking for big trees, you know, it's specific, visualize it, really visualize it. And then don't be afraid to iterate on it. You know, just because it looks one way at one time, that's okay. Who I was at 23 is not who I am at 38, you know? So it's going to be iterative, but but hold something in your eye. Another framework for it that I do sometimes use is if you imagine yourself on your deathbed and imagine that you're looking back at your life and you feel content with what you see. And if I were to build a, a pie graph of your backwards vision of your life, how much of it is career, how much of it is family, how much of it is fun, travel, all these things. Think about it and build into it because sometimes your life might be consumed by career and you'll be like, well, this isn't, I remember I had a 23 year old tell me she doesn't have work-life balance. I remember laughing, being like, of course you don't have work-life balance. You don't get to have work-life balance. You haven't earned that yet. At the early stage of your, you might spend a ton of your time on career. It's not about the moment, in my opinion. It's about that holistic, what did you build when you look back on that pie graph? So be willing to do certain things, at, you know, have imbalance in your life at certain points of time. And then as long as it's all building into that, that vision that you get really excited about. I love that. That is so good. I like this idea too of like journaling this stuff down so you can look back at it later so that you can iterate on it. So that these things, I mean, they're amazing to stay in your mind, but I think putting them on paper so you can, like you said, reevaluate. Yeah, that's so funny, the work-life balance. We hear about that all the time, obviously, you know, but your time and when you're young is to work hard and, and, you know, get opportunities, whatever those look like. And I so appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. This has been so valuable. I could talk to you for so long about all the awesome things that you're up to. Could you let everyone know where they can follow Lunya and Lago and Deep and all the things and Outdoor Voices? I know you're the chairwoman of, which is, you know, you have so many things. We can't even touch on all of them, but um, where can they follow you? 
Lunia Lago Natural Voices are all online and on Instagram and all on TikTok and you know all the different places that you'd find them. The deep is the deep dot life, both online and on Instagram. So that's how you find it. And for me, it's Ashley double underscore Merrill on Instagram. Perfect. Well, thank you again for all this. This was so fun. I really appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, Erica. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts. 